0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: This is Cleve with The Washington
0: Post.
2: It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 4th. Today, the epic breakdown in Iowa, permanent changes to environmental regulations, and the adult appeal of Legos. So tell me, what happened last night? (laughs) I
2: don't know. I don't know what happened last night. We still don't have results. Jenna Johnson has been reporting from Iowa. Our
0: caucus is electing nine delegates. With your candidate, with your campaign, group up with your campaign right now.
2: For the past year, everyone's been talking about the Iowa caucuses. The candidates have been spending millions of dollars here. Thousands of volunteers have been giving up their time. And at the end of the day, we didn't know who the winner was. Okay, 223, so 24. No. 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 Okay, our high One, two, three, four. We had a lot of candidates no. claiming that they were the winner or claiming that they had a really good night, but we had no way of checking that. And so, given everything that's been building up to this moment... Raise your hand high if you're
3: above 212.
2: We're left with just not really much of anything. But what do we know about exactly
0: what went wrong? Like, why don't we have any results so far?
2: Well, the big thing is the precincts were having trouble getting the results... From their precincts to the state party. Now, let's remember, the Iowa caucuses are not like your typical primary contest. People are not showing up at voting locations and using ballots. This is a process that's run by the Democratic state party, not by the government. And so it's up to the party to figure out how to get all of the results to them so that they can decide who the winner is. And that process just broke down. Are we
1: going to realign now? The, uh, the super slick technology is messing with us. And that's why we're held up. We're held up, we're held up by slick super efficient
2: technology. There was an app that the different precinct leaders were supposed to use to report the results. A lot of people were having trouble logging into that, trying to get it to work. The backup was for people to call the state party, call in their results. And there were waits of an hour or two for people trying to do it that way.
1: We have to, we have to make the official report before we get to aligned.
2: There were some party leaders who tried to just take photos of the results and then drive them to the state party headquarters. Oh, wow. But there was no one there who could receive them. So it was really one of these things where... We seem to have results from all of these precincts, and the state party assures us they don't think that there was any fraud that happened here. They're not worried about the validity of the results that they got, that they just have a reporting problem. Hmm. They just had a problem getting all of the numbers into one place and into a usable format so that they could communicate them to the world.
0: We'll come around and add to your totals. So just, just stay put. We'll come around here in a few minutes. But even if there were certain caucuses where you had people like taking pictures of the crowd to be able to to actually tabulate the results, there's not a concern that that there might be some inaccuracy in the results that come out? Or is this really just an issue of, yes, we have to wait longer than people would have liked, but we know that the results are solid and that what
2: is ultimately reported will be accurate? Iowa Democrats are saying exactly what you just said. You know, the process was fine. No need to worry about the accuracy of the results. It's just going to take us a little while to get the results in a usable format. Some of the campaigns are raising questions about individual precincts. And so I think in the coming days, there's going to be some attention to perhaps some of the inconsistencies.
0: And you mentioned that some of the campaigns have already declared some form of victory, even though it's clear that nobody has any idea what's going on. Why are we seeing those kinds of messages from campaigns so far, and how are they reacting to this uncertainty considering all the time and money and effort that has been poured into Iowa over the past year?
2: So all of the major campaigns had a precinct captain at every single precinct in the state. Those are the people who kind of rallied everyone together. Those were the people who were in charge of recruiting new supporters, And so they had people on the ground who could kind of tell them what they were seeing and hearing. And most of the campaigns had a way for those precinct captains to tell them what they were seeing and what was going on. And so the campaigns are kind of basing their results on that, on on what their own people were seeing on the ground. Various campaigns have uh, gone to various lengths in how they talk about that.
1: So we don't know all the results. (laughs) But.
2: Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, basically gave a victory speech last night.
0: By all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious.
2: Even though we don't have any formal results yet, other campaigns were careful to say, you know, they thought that they had a really good night and framed it just kind of in those terms. So while the caucuses were actually happening, what were you
0: and other reporters actually looking at?
2: Yeah, so we sent reporters to six different caucuses across the state. We picked places that we thought would be kind of key to understanding what happened here in Iowa. So we sent someone to the Des Moines suburbs. Okay, all caucus doors are going to go to 10. And we're going to go around and we're going to count all of the groups of 10. We sent someone to a Spanish-language caucus in Des Moines. We sent two people to counties in the eastern part of the state that voted for Obama twice and then Trump once.
1: Yeah, so we get to elect seven delegates from
2: our group. And we sent a reporter to a small farming community in the northwestern part of the state. And again, we don't have results yet, but what we were seeing was that Bernie Sanders seemed to have a good night. He came close to winning Iowa in 2016, and he still has a lot of support here.
0: And and I would point out that our colleague Maria Sacchetti, I cover... The first Spanish-language caucuses in Iowa. She was tweeting from a voting site in Des Moines at a YMCA. About 200 people, mostly Latinos, showed up. And she just took pictures of the people that were standing for each candidate. And Warren, Klobuchar, Biden, Buttigieg, they all had just like a handful of people, if so much. And then they were overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders, they said, because... He had reached out to them, often in their native language, in Spanish. And I thought that was really notable. There was almost no need for realignment. The Bernie Sanders supporters would not be moved.
2: His campaign has been really making an effort to connect with non-white voters. Um, This is something that he struggled with in the last election. Uh, His movement was seen as kind of one that was very white. And so he's gone into this election trying to correct for that. And so (laughs) we saw the results of that at the YMCA that Maria was at. But we saw that a lot of times when caucus goers went in during the first round of caucusing, Sanders would get a big group of support. But then there was the second round of caucusing. And people who had supported candidates who couldn't get enough support in the room had to basically pick a second pick.
3: I can tell the precinct... Captains, okay. to come over and talk to you.
0: If you... Well, only the precinct. No, we're captains. also welcome to walk up to people and say, "Convince
2: me." And in a lot of caucuses, we saw that Sanders was not really picking up other people's supporters. And in one case in Ankeny, which is a suburb of Des Moines, Sanders won the first round. But then he could only get six more people in the second round, and they were mostly all Andrew Yang supporters.
3: 6, seven, eight, nine,
0: 10, 11, 12, 13. Yang <laughs> is not viable in the first round.
2: <laughs> Meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg was able to get 27 new supporters. 27. <laughs> 49 plus 27 is
0: 76.
2: And that meant he won in that precinct. Mm. It also seemed like not a great night for former Vice President Joe Biden. There were a lot of places where we expected Biden to do quite well, and he just didn't. He was not getting big numbers. Elizabeth Warren has spent a year organizing here in Iowa. She had one of the best field programs in the state, And again, we didn't see a massive, overwhelming swell of support for her. You know, this seemed to be a really good night for Pete Buttigieg. You know, he has spent also a lot of time in the state, uh, especially while the senators were stuck in D.C. for the impeachment. He's been having several events a day all over the state. And we saw that result in, you know, what seems to be a lot of support for him.
0: That's interesting if if you're saying that, at least anecdotally from what you all saw from those six voting sites, that it seems like the people who wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders were people who went in and had him as their first choice and really stuck with him. What do you think that tells us about the candidates and their viability nationally?
2: Well, I mean, the big challenge for Bernie Sanders, even before the caucuses happened, was this impression that he might not be able to rally the party around him that while he has some very passionate supporters that he could struggle to get the supporters of other candidates to get behind him and so a big challenge for him is going to be proving that he can not only represent his die-hard supporters but that he can bring in other democrats and get them to believe in him. And again, from the six caucuses that that we went to, uh, we were seeing kind of before our eyes that, that that seems to still be a problem for him. But we have a lot of observations from across the state. We have a lot of campaigns trying to tell us what happened, but we don't have any formal results of the biggest night in politics so far this year. And I think a lot of voters in other states were looking to Iowa to maybe narrow the field a little bit more and help them decide which people they should be considering for the Democratic nomination. And at the end of the night, we didn't have any clear answers. We didn't have any clear direction. Um, The results were just as muddied as this whole process has been.
0: Jenna Johnson covers politics for The Post. On Tuesday afternoon, Democratic Party officials in Iowa said that they expect to release partial results from the caucuses later Tuesday evening. For more updates on Iowa caucus results, subscribe to The Washington Post election podcast feed. Search for Election 2020 in your podcast app or go to WashingtonPost.com podcasts.
3: It's easy to get distracted by a lot of things that are going on. But what's important to keep in mind is some of the changes that are being undertaken right now by the administration will have ramifications potentially for decades and have huge implications for what happens to our environment, how we operate our public lands. When all is said and done, there's plenty of news that doesn't last more than a matter of weeks, whereas this, what we're seeing now is a real sea change in how the government approaches its job when it comes to policing energy and the environment. My name is Juliette Iopran. I'm a senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post, and I cover climate and the environment.
0: So while impeachment has been happening, and it feels like sometimes that impeachment is the only thing that is happening. But there have actually been things happening in the government and the White House that are not related to impeachment, specifically things, a lot of things having to do with the environment. Yes, this has been a busy month for the administration when it comes to the environment and and the energy
3: sector, even though you wouldn't know it from some of the press coverage. So just off the top of my head, we have had in this past month, The White House has proposed major changes to the National Environmental Policy Act.
1: Today, we're taking another historic step in our campaign to slash job-killing regulations and improve the quality of life for all of our citizens.
3: This is one of the most important environmental laws that nobody's heard of, which
1: just (laughs) celebrated its
3: 50th anniversary, and it really requires that the federal government scrutinize the environmental impact of any action it takes and disclose that to the public. And there are a number of, of changes that the administration's proposing, but really the biggest one is that it's narrowing to what extent it can analyze the climate impact of this change.
1: For the first time in over 40 years, today we're issuing a proposed new rule under the National Environmental Policy Act to completely overhaul the dysfunctional bureaucratic system that has created these massive obstructions.
3: Then, on top of that, they finalized changes to what's called the waters of the United States, where essentially the federal government under the previous administration said that it could weigh in on activities affecting 60% of the water bodies in the United States, including small and intermittent streams on the grounds that, you know, for example, if you dredge or fill or use pesticides right by a small waterway, it could have long-term implications for kind of what water pollution is going on. The administration has dramatically scaled back which waterways will be subject to federal oversight.
2: In the proposal,
1: we are clearly defining the difference between federally regulated waterways and those left solely to state authority.
0: Interesting. So even some of these smaller waterways that the federal government used to regulate and be like, you can't do certain things here because it would be damaging to the environment of the waterway. Now they're saying these streams and rivers are not our problem. You can do what you want. Exactly. And then on top of that, you have that
3: the two agencies, the Department of Transportation and EPA, sent documents to the White House this month Outlining how they will change and roll back federal mileage standards for cars and light trucks across the country. And we are on the cusp of seeing a final rule that will affect the mercury and other air toxics released by power plants across the country. There, what's unusual is that the administration is not going to weaken the existing standards, but say they were never justified. And as a result, you could see basically a a change to how the administration evaluates pollution going forward. And ultimately, you could have the industry come in and challenge the basis for those rules, which could ultimately lift them.
0: But why is that? Like, why would they want to make it easier for Mercury to be released out into the world. What's interesting is that
3: the administration would say that they're not interested in that. What they are interested in doing is changing the way we calculate the cost and benefits of pollution. And so their argument is that when the Obama administration finalized this rule in 2012, they took into account not just the benefits of curbing mercury, but the fact that power plants would have to put on pollution controls that would actually keep the kind of soot and other pollutants that kill people – from entering the atmosphere. That's really where you get the big bang for your buck with these rules. And what the current administration is arguing is that that's fuzzy math. That's not acceptable, and you should really only focus on the pollutant you're trying to curb. But in doing that, you really are undercutting a lot of the justification for some of the most significant limits on air pollution we have in this country. And on top of all of that... You had a change to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act with a proposed rule that will clarify that in the eyes of the federal government, if you unintentionally kill birds, even massive amounts of birds, that's not a violation of the century-old law, whereas if you intentionally kill them, that's the only way you could be subject to criminal prosecution.
0: Wait, this seems so random that the administration is turning toward the Migratory Bird Treaty Act as like an area where they want to make big changes.
3: While it might seem a little esoteric, that's a law that was passed in 1918 and, you know, was prompted by, say, high-class ladies, you know, targeting birds for their hats and things like that. It actually is a pretty powerful but not well-known law, which— poses a problem for energy companies, including renewable energy, not just oil and gas companies, as well as vessels and and a whole array of activities. Because essentially, in the past, historically, the federal government has said, if you even unintentionally kill birds— You could potentially be on the hook for this. And so this is including, for example, oil pits, which exist in, you know, tons of oil and gas operations where birds are attracted to them, fallen, are covered in oil and died. It can be, you know, you have communication towers or wind turbines.
1: They're noisy. They kill the birds. You want to see a bird graveyard? You just go. Take a look. A bird graveyard? Go under a windmill someday you'll see more birds than you've ever seen ever in your life.
3: Where there are not sufficient precautions to prevent bird deaths and all those kinds of things. So its it really matters to a lot of, of, of folks in this country.
0: So th- this is a set of regulations that... that they're there to protect birds, but also has served to kind of put limits on a bunch of industries and what they can do related to the environment. Because people will say, well, if you're violating this Migratory Bird Treaty Act, then you can't do these things that probably have negative consequences for other parts of the environment as well. Exactly. So why are all these changes happening now? Like, why is this something that the administration is kind of gunning for? Well, I think the way to think about it is that this is a
3: pivotal year in President Trump's tenure now that we are in the final year of his first term. And in fact, just what we've been talking about with migratory birds is a great example of that. So what happened literally on December 22nd, 2017, right before Christmas, is with a stroke of a pen, the acting top lawyer for the Trump administration issued a legal opinion and it said, you know what, I've taken a look at this Migratory Bird Treaty Act and how it was enforced under the Obama administration and they got it wrong. This has been a Damocles sword hanging over the heads of industry and we're going to reinterpret it and we're not going to enforce the law the way it had been enforced in the past. And that was a significant act, but it was just a legal opinion. If the next president comes in and wants to issue – two pages worth of of legal interpretation that's the opposite of that, that will completely wipe that off the books. And so now what you see the administration doing is they're trying to make sure that some of these regulatory rollbacks last. They want to make sure that regardless of what happens, second term, not a second term, that they are changing the way the law will be applied in America when it comes to these issues. And so that's why this proposal is significant. They're going to work as fast as they can to get it completed by January 2021. And if they can do that, it would have long-term repercussions and would take some
0: time to undo. And what are some of those long-term repercussions that we could be seeing from all of these changes and the fact that they're becoming more codified and could outlast even a Trump presidency?
3: When you look at all of these changes and what they could mean for the long term, there are decisions that federal officials are making now that have repercussions for for years. I mean, they're making changes to long-term plans for how we use public land. They're changing the terms in which you'd look for the climate impact of all these decisions. So while they're making some changes
0: this year, they can certainly reverberate for decades to come. And what do you think these changes are also doing to the government itself and what it's like to be working in parts of the government that are focused on things like protecting the environment?
3: It obviously depends on on different individuals, but certainly what no one can question, there has been an exodus of scientists under this administration. What we've seen according to the government's own statistics is that in the first two years of the Trump administration, 1,600 scientists at least have, have left. And in certain agencies, it's it's more significant. For example, in the Environmental Protection Agency in the past three years, roughly 700 scientists have left and only half of them have been replaced. And certainly when you talk to a number of these experts who have left, they left for a mix of reasons, but it includes the fact that they did not agree with the policy direction of this administration, that they did not feel that their science was being taken into account in making decisions. And in some cases, it was because, for example, in the case of the Agriculture Department, they're moving two major divisions from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City, they've, they've done that and they've lost a huge portion of, of those folks. And so, you know, one of the things I think of a lot is kind of what is going on with the institution of the government? Do we have experts in there over the long term, the best and brightest, who are going to be informing our policies? And when you have a significant outflow of employees, that makes a difference.
0: Juliet Alprin covers the environment for The Post. And now, one more thing.
1: I grew up playing with Legos, building houses and spaceships with my brother, and I'm still frequently on the floor putting together pieces with my two young kids. But in my reporting, I found that more and more adults, even without kids, are returning to Legos as a way to unwind at the end of the day. I am Abba Potray, and I am the retail reporter for The Washington Post. Lego is changing up its target demographic by going after adults to make up for waning sales growth and increased competition from other toy makers. To that end, they are rolling out all of these new Gen X nostalgic sets like the Central Park Cafe from Friends and a historic Batmobile, all aimed at getting 30 and 40, 50 somethings to play with Lego again. And more importantly, to drop money, hundreds of dollars sometimes on these sets. And not just adults, but Lego is increasingly looking beyond just the diehard hobbyists to target casual builders who might be looking for mindfulness as people look for new ways to relax. And for the past five years, the company has been revamping its instructions booklets because they found that adults especially like to be told exactly what to do. They don't want to be creative. They don't want to have this open, you know, area where they can build whatever they want. That's too overwhelming at the end of the day. They want to be told exactly which pieces to put together when, and that helps them zone out. And it's a lot like adult coloring books, crossword puzzles, knitting, all of these different things that we've seen come into the mainstream in recent years as people look for ways to unengage with the digital world. We're all bombarded with technology all day long. We're all staring at screens. And I think people are nostalgic for an era when that wasn't the case. And a lot of them, especially Gen X, which grew up playing with Legos, was really the first generation to have Legos widely available, is harking back to this older time when things were simpler.
2: Abba
0: Bhattarai writes about retail and business for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to talk more about the stories on our show, join the Post Reports Facebook group. There are hundreds of members who are also loyal listeners. And right now, we're having interesting discussions about Iowa caucuses and impeachment and success stories from Sober January. Become a member by going to Facebook.com slash groups slash Post I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Ooh. Mm.